All right, ladies and gentlemen, it's a minute after 5 o'clock, and that concludes Rumble Tone Radio A Go-Go for this Wednesday edition, June 10th, 2009. I'll be back next Wednesday. I met OG. Let me just fade out the terrific green on red. Formerly out of Tucson, Arizona, they uh, got out of the hot baking sun and made their way to the beach and uh, resided in Los Angeles for a number of years until they uh, gained a big European following and then a couple of the main members decided to, to live over in England in Germany so they can play amongst all their fans over there. That was Green on Red, Gravity Talks off of their first full-length album that Slash Warner Brothers released in probably 1983 thereabouts and uh, Urban Gorilla covering the mouse and the traps tune made of sugar made of spice they're performing friday nights at pub 340 with the manipulators and the belladines and that as i was saying that concludes rumble tone radio go go arts report coming up next thanks for tuning on in i'll be back next wednesday at three o'clock don't forget the podcast for not only rumble tone radio go go but all the other terrific programs that are here broadcasting live over the airwaves 101.9 fm the podcast, go to the website, citr.ca. Adios, amigos. Arch Report coming up next. See you next Wednesday. Mars. Get ready to travel, Vancouver. Join with thousands as the North by Northeast Music and Film Festival and Conference rocks Toronto from June 17th to June 21st. Five days, 50 venues, and 500-plus bands, including Black Lips, Matt and Kim, Jason Collette, Health, The Burning Brides, and many more. countries, dozens of genres, plus 30 of the year's best music-related films. Wristbands are already on sale. Check www.nxne.com for tickets and festival details. It's a float plane. No, it's the evaporators. Soaring in and bringing supplies on June 23rd, the evaporators launched their new 7-inch, a wild pair. Andrew W.K. joins them at Neptune Records for a live performance from 4 to 6 p.m. And if that's not enough, head over to the Biltmore at 8 for an encore performance with the Vicious Cycles. It'll make you want to fly. Amy Kazimerchik and I am a filmmaker and curator that lives in Vancouver and I program a monthly evening of contemporary short form cinema and cinematic collaborations at the Pacific Cinematheque called DIM and uh, actually July will be its one year anniversary so it's been happening since July 2008 I guess. Congratulations. Well thank you. I think it's really exciting. I mean it's hard to run a, an experimental film night in Vancouver. There's not a huge audience for it and I think it's quite an achievement. So um, I did a double program for May and June of 2009, which is a focus on the film works of an uh, experimental filmmaker who lives in Vancouver now, but is originally from the UK by the name of Chris Wellsby. And the May 
screening was a lecture that he gave um, that kind of went through the history of his work from the late 60s all the way up to the present and talked about early 16 millimeter structuralist films all the way up to new media um, digital installations and uh, yeah, so uh, he basically presented those works with small clips or still images from different projects. And then the June screening, which will happen on June 15th mm -hmm. um, at 7.30 p.m. at the Pacific Cinematheque, will be, I believe there is one, two, three, four, five, six, six works that are from the late 60s and early 70s. Um, and they'll be shown in their entirety, and those are all 16 millimeter prints. So it's really exciting to have this work. A lot of it's being flown in from the U.K., mm -hmm. and um, there's also... Uh, a couple of um, two two projection installations that we're setting up special. Awesome. In the Cinematheque as well? It is in the Cinematheque and actually there's a couple of technicians that have to work out setting the projectors up actually in the theater as opposed from the booth because this theater isn't kind of, it, the, the projection system isn't set up to be able to do dual projection. Right. Installation, yeah. And is this the first time that these films will be screened in Vancouver? Um, that's a good question, Chris. You'd probably have to answer that. <laughs> yes, really sure. for, for those of you listening out there, Chris Wellsby is on the line from Victoria, I believe. From Gabriel Island. From Gabriel Island. Chris, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you. Uh, thank you for inviting me, I should say. Not at all. Um, so in answer to your question, I last did a uh, film screening in, uh, ooh, back in the last century um, for the Western <sighs> Wilderness um, uh, committee mm -hmm. um, and it was a benefit screening and some of the films were shown then uh, in that screening but um, two of the films in particular have never been shown here, actually three um, it's uh, actually a North American premiere for River Yar, the mm -hmm. screen film and also Wind Vane um, and I believe it's the first time that Drift has been shown here and Drift I made in the in the 90s, um, I think. When was Drift? 1994. Yeah, 94. So uh, that was actually made in Vancouver, and it's never been shown here. It's been shown all over the world. So <laughs> it, um, it's really nice to uh, have the opportunity to show here. But it is the one piece that was actually shot in Vancouver. <laughs> yeah. And yet it's never been seen here. Yes, yeah, so and many of my works have been shot here. In fact, I've been living here for 20 years, and I think I've made about 15 works here, many, in fact, most of which have never been shown here. Not, I should add, through my choice, but just lack of circumstance, shall we say. Fair enough. Well, going off of that point then, Amy, why, why did you choose to, to bring all these films together now at this time to show the Vancouver audience? Um, well, I met Chris, actually, I think it was in uh, during the February screening. It was a screening of two structural pieces that were from Toronto called um, that was part of a program called Cinema and Disjunction and uh, it was that program was curated by um, a filmmaker from Toronto by the name of Ben Donahue who has known Chris for a long time and um, had suggested that Chris participate on a panel discussion after the screening so I had gotten in touch with Chris around participating on that and we met that evening and spent a night after drinking at La Bodega and it just came up sort of more of a discussion of his work and the, his processes and I realized that although many of my peers and colleagues had seen a lot of his work that I hadn't and I said well can you just send me a DVD and let me look at it and I was totally blown away by the work um, 
And I just thought, oh, well, we just, it's ridiculous that this work hasn't shown in its entirety here, and it just really has to happen, so let's just do it. So it was, quite, it was really a matter of circumstance of, you know, the timing of meeting Chris and of me being in a privileged place to be able to program this event, and I just thought, oh, it's just what better time than now, really, so. Absolutely, man. Fantastic. Good timing for me. <laughs> so uh, why don't we launch into... The questions that I have for you, Chris, I mean, my first one right off the bat is for the general audience out there. A lot of them won't be familiar with landscape films. and So can you, can you sort of help people who are listening understand what it is that a landscape film or the, the type of films that you do? What, how would you explain it? Uh, I think one would have to start by just saying, well that the kind of film I make has little to do with cinema um, and that the cinema has its own sort of history. Uh, but there's another, uh, to my mind, richer history, which is as old as cinema, um, of experimental film and video. Um, and the work that I do is part of that tradition. And it's the work that you're beginning to see now, long overdue, I might add, in uh, art galleries um, as installation works. So, it's uh, you know starting to um, enter into the arena of contemporary art, shall we say? Um, so the work that I do uh, is within uh, that realm of experimental film, um, and has, as I said, little to do with mainstream cinema, but much more to do with landscape art, um, perhaps you know with its roots in the. Barbizan School in, in, in France, more politicized um, landscape works just prior to the Impressionists. Um, and in more recent work, I mean, people that, stuff that people might have heard of, like Smithson's Spiral Jetty, mm -hmm. um, that kind of system speaks work. Um, so, really, you know, I, I just use the moving image because uh, landscape moves. Right. <laughs> and that's about the sort of the main connection that it has with film or video. And in fact, now I make uh, uh, new media work, so. Chris, I think, I mean, maybe part of what you could say or what I might be able to say mm -hmm. about it is that your process is more about an engagement with the landscape as it is about an engagement with cinema specifically. And the cinema is the, it's the tool or it's the sort of connecting medium or the filter through which to experience or to, uh, what would you say, yeah. or to document, or you know, or to experiment with, but that the that your physical, like the, the act of the making itself, is an engagement with the landscape. Would you yes, say that? I, I think that's right, and um, you know that goes to the other question about how what is my working method, and mm -hmm. it really begins with being in the landscape and being, for example, in a, a, a particular place and spending time there and seeing what's happened. Uh, you know, the changes of light, uh, which way the wind blows, um, which whether the, so when the tide comes in, goes out, uh, all of those sort of elements that you can observe, the movement of people, um, but also then thinking about, well, what equipment might I have av uh, available? You know, would it be a 60mm camera or a computer or a tape recorder? And thinking about that, and then out of that comes an idea for building or inventing a sort of a language that will communicate something that's 
um, really important and really special about that place and that time, about being in the moment at that time and thinking and feeling about, you know, how it feels, what it makes you think. I think that there's one thing, I mean, to that extent of on the note of paying attention or of being present, um, one of the things... The, the small detail of Chris's work that appears in a number of films that I really appreciate is um, being able to see his shadow mm. in the films. And I think what's interesting about that is um, it's sort of evidence of the watching or it's evidence of the process. And it's like, oh, here's, it's not like, you know, you have this um, pure frame that's like, you know, uh, this is this is the this is the image or this is a subject without the filmmaker or that the filmmaker or the act of framing itself or the act of watching is totally distanced from it. But when you see those moments of his shadow coming through the image or his hands in some moments or in uh, I believe it is in is it windmill the one with the uh, Chris is windmill or is it windvane the one with the the blades. Windmill. Yeah, in Windmill, where you actually do see his reflection in moments in the blade, is is it sort of it bears witness to that act of witnessing and to that fact that there is physically somebody there and they are physically taking the time to set this up and they're working something out, you know, because it's like if it was completely worked out, you might even work through the process of not wanting yourself in it. But when you're right there and you're physically in the experiment or you're in the act of just you know, trying to be present to the environment and to nature and to the elements. It's like you, in, in cinema, you might say that was a fuck up to have your image in it. That's true. But um, I think it sort of uh, deconstructs or it just kind of peels open the process of, of that connection, which I think is really interesting. Amy's completely on the ball with you. <laughs> I think that's very, <laughs> that's a very important point. And people often say, well, why aren't there any people in your film? And I say, well, they are. I'm always in the unit. So I think, yes, Amy's quite right. It strikes me as well that it's a very self-conscious, I mean, we see the camera in Windmill, for example, or in uh, Seven Days, I believe it is, where um, you, you're only able to capture that that silhouette of your shadow when the cloud cover is going over and that's when the camera turns and looks up and that's certainly something that didn't resonate with me until a couple minutes in when I was watching and I was realizing that when the clouds when I was seeing the clouds that's obviously when I wouldn't be able to see the shadow anyways so can you can you speak a little bit about um, your intentions or or um, about your role in your own films and what you're trying to uh, make viewers, I guess, just ponder or what, what you're bringing to the floor. Well, I, I think that the work began with a, a sort of fairly sort of philosophical debate that I was having with myself, perhaps, about um, the relationship between human beings, technology, and nature. Um, and uh, this really came out of being a painter and painting landscapes in the first place. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I started using photography and became interested in more in, you know, the higher technology, higher higher end, perhaps you could call it, than paint and canvas anyway. Um, and that relationship seems to me to be completely um, crucial um, philosophically. And then, of course, more recently, as it's turned out, um, it's become not just an abstract philosophical thing, but it's now, you know, a matter of um, extreme importance and right on the top of the political agenda. Um, so as I've 
I think mentioned before that after years of studiously avoiding relevance, um, I've found myself to be um, represented now having films shown at environmental conferences and things like that. So things have changed a lot. I mean, that's, that's sort of a surprising turn in terms of uh, your audience shifting. Did you have any sense of that when you were making the films? Well, um, when, when River Yar, for example, was first shown in 72, it was actually my first, I think, major public screening. It was at the National Film Theatre in South Bank, London, and it emptied the cinema. People um, just literally got up, slammed the seats, shut the views. And we sat at the back and thought, I wonder what we did wrong, you know? <laughs> um, and then, I mean, nowadays, there's people sort of shouting and yelling and trying to get in because there's a line up around the block for that film. Um, and so, yeah, things have changed. And it changed, it just changed gradually. Um, and it's not just the environmental thing. It's because people are now much more aware that moving image and media art is actually part of of art history and that that it's um you know it's, it's really a an extension of um visual art practice and sound art practice mm. um, uh, i know that in your talk last month you spoke about systems theory uh and how it has played a role in your work can you talk a little bit about what that is for viewers who uh, for listeners who may have never heard of it and how it's how it, do you use it in your work? Okay. Um, well, systems theory sort of began, I think, in the field of biology sometimes in the 20s, but it's since evolved into a very useful uh, interdisciplinary um, science um, that has application, all sorts of ex extraordinary applications. So the first, of course, is um, you know in in, in ecology. Um, but also it's used in medicine, for example, with, uh, to predict um, uh, arrhythmia in, in people with heart conditions. Mm -hmm. It's also used to um, predict, for example, traffic jams and traffic flow patterns. Uh, it's used for an uh, to study animal behavior, including humans. Schizophrenia, for example. Um, and then large technological systems like, for example, the electricity grid, when, when a power outage goes down, well, what went wrong? How can you predict it? Um, so it has many applications. Um, in fact, so much so that we're really quite used to that way of thinking. Mm. Um, and so the way that I use it is to think of, I mean, the definition of it is the study of, uh, to study the parts of the larger of the larger parts, in other words, parts of the holes. So to think of everything as a, a, as, um, a series of interlocking, interdependent systems. Um, and what I do is to look at the landscape and the things that I just, you were talking about earlier, in the landscape, like wind and tide and light, and, and then look at the equipment and say, okay, well, I can run it like this or like that, and think of them as two um, parts of a larger system. Um, and out of that um, evolves the film. So um, I don't know if that's very good. Uh, <laughs> no, I, I, I think that it's it's an excellent uh, description for people who may not have heard of it before. It, it strikes me, though, that I, I wonder how 
where, where do you focus taking that large spectrum and the interconnectedness of nature and technology and humanity where do you start when you say i want to make a new film there are so many ways you could go about um choosing what aspect you you want to focus on or bring attention to how how does that process work for you well it just starts with being somewhere and seeing in the landscape usually um and seeing something and seeing a place that starts to feel special and and being just being observant yeah. and thinking about the technology that i have and and thinking about what's going on in the landscape and then how does that come to film has it has it changed at all when, since you've moved to canada like your own surroundings if you're brought up in in england and then coming here to Vancouver is a very different landscape, and has that changed? Well, it isn't, it isn't. I mean, you know, system theory would say it's all part of the same landscape. That's true. The planet with the global weather system, so there's that connection. But yes, geographically, mm -hmm. it's massively different. Um, but, you know, I've made films of the ocean and lakes and things like that, trees. Um, uh, I don't do large vistas, so I think it's sort of less noticeable, the difference, really. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess, I mean, one thing that is one of my questions is just for you, having this collection of films come together now, many of them from the 60s and 70s, Amy's brought a lot of things together, but how, how, does, how is this... Uh, presentation other than the fact that it's the first time many of the films will be screened in Vancouver how does this feel to you or what's your experience of seeing your films presented in this way now um, well uh, two parts of that question um, I suppose really you're thinking geographically now in Vancouver because um, mm -hmm. I do screenings all the time right. elsewhere um, and installations and it's uh it's really nice to be able to show some work in your own town where you've lived and where you've, you know, taught sort of hundreds of students and, mm -hmm. um, and the communities that you belong to. So um, I was beginning to feel sort of quite, <clears throat> that it was really quite urgent to show some work here. Mm -hmm. um, and this is a really good start to show this this body of work, which uh, I refer to uh, sometimes uh, laughingly as Chris Wells' greatest hits, you know, <laughs> the golden oldies. Um, yes. And, uh, you know, it is, it's a really good time to show this work, and I hope that it'll lead to other things like, for example, showing some of the big installations. Mm -hmm. uh, like, I, I have a film for, um, uh, uh, called At Sea, uh, film I called it um, it's a digital video installation um, and it was all shot at English Bay um, and it's been shown all over the world, Asia and Europe and even the Soviet Union I think um, and it'd be so good to show that here yes. yeah, it's a hundred foot long projection of uh, English Bay if you wish in a, on a very very foggy day mm. <laughs> I mean I think listeners will be wondering at this point why. Why is it so difficult for you to, or why haven't there been screenings before? And I, I would like both of you, Amy and Chris, to respond to why it is so, why it is so difficult. Um, I mean, 
you know, the fact that Chris has been here for 20 years will blow this statement out of the water, but I will say that I feel like Vancouver is built on nepotism and a sense of it's sort of obsession with itself and people who, you know, start here very young and build this community and, you know, become intertangled in the web of, you know, the gallery system or artist-run centers or community radio or performance art or uh, experimental sound. And I think that Vancouver in some ways is a very young city that way um, and really prides itself on a, on sort of the, the beauty and intrigue of youth in a way. Um, so, I would take a guess. Part of it is potentially, you know, Chris coming here and after having started and built a career in Europe, um, just potentially just a sense of sort of uh, uh, naive disregard for that kind of professionalism or that kind of experience or that kind of wisdom that comes with age, which, you know, I, I don't think the city is particularly enticed by. It's very sort of what's new, what's hip, what's changing, and it's a city that's kind of always reinventing itself that way. I think that that's part of it, and I also think that um, yeah, I think that that's a big part of our cultural landscape. It's just, it's not the same. I don't feel like we have the same regard for history or the same regard for sort of a um, a, 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 for commitment, really, that yeah. I would say parts of Europe do, or even parts of the states do, like New York. Or um, so I don't know. I think that that's part of it, and I also just think that potentially it is. I mean, I don't. That's actually the only thing I have to say. But I will say this though: that Chris has another show at the Surrey Art Gallery right now, which is a piece called. It's a digital installation um, called Heaven's Breath, and that is up. I believe sometime until the middle of August, um, at least at the Surrey Art Gallery, so people can go and visit it there. Um, that's another work that's being mounted right now. And I would just say that, um, you know, I think that another part of it is that cinema also hasn't been very big in Vancouver. It doesn't actually have a really rich history at all. And um, compared to Toronto, which in Canada would be sort of the, the epicenter of experimental film. And I do think if you look at the kind of culture that has developed in the art world in Vancouver, it's very much been around conceptual art and very much around conceptual photography. And I would say maybe even abstraction or even sort of a preoccupation with... Um, um, something that's quite, I would say, quite refined or quite finished or quite sheet, like glossy in a way. So I just think that it's, you know, maybe a combination of things that just make Vancouver not the city, not the best city Chris could have moved to in North America for his career. But 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 we're happy, and I and I think that there's a lot of value in his work. And you know, when I, I'll just say this is particularly, I know Chris has been incredibly meaningful to all of his students that he taught as at SFU and I know a number of them who have gone through his classes and in in the last years and a number of them have talked to me upon um, announcing that I was doing the screening and they're like oh my god I can't wait to go because you know he was such a meaningful teacher to me and such a meaningful inspiration but he doesn't really talk about his work in class or we don't really see it and I actually kind of have no idea what he does in a way um, and those people have been really excited to come and find out more about him so I would say um, you know, at the very least, Chris Wellsby as a person has been quite influential to, to a number of people and probably a number of filmmakers' works or uh, new media artists' works. And um, so now it's, you know, t- 
time for those people to maybe get a glimpse of why that is. Absolutely. What came before that? Chris, so, how, how do you respond to that? That's, uh, there's a lot of information and a lot of uh, wonderful things coming out of that comment. Yes, uh, I mean, I think uh, Amy's analysis is really quite accurate. Um, these, there's sort of, I, I get the impression that people have really decided what art is about around here, and, um, you know, I'm, I, I just don't fit in with the picture very well. I mean, I do occasionally write to galleries, but I never get a response. Hmm. Um, I, I mean, galleries, yeah. Right. Um, so in the end, it's, <laughs> I just tend to show where I, where I can get exhibitions, which is elsewhere. I mean, to put it on the map, you know, Chris just went and did a sold-out lecture at Light Cone in Paris and, again, at the Tate in London. So it's like there's not, you know, there's, n there's not a shortage of interest or there's not meaning or, or relevance in the work. It's just in the context of Vancouver. It's like, it just doesn't... Well, I, for me, it strikes a chord in that really known as Hollywood North, which is a very glossy, very superficial and not very, um, let's say, inspiring mode of film and mode of being and I think that there's a lot of of that sort of um, hip as you said Amy uh, mentality around not only the the art culture or the, uh, the venues here but just the whole the whole aesthetic of living in Vancouver in this place it seems very it's very young very nubile and uh, that's not so conducive necessarily to having an appreciation beyond a homegrown sort of Uber talent versus anything else. Yeah. I, I, I would just, <laughs> if I could just Absolutely. pop in here. I'm, I'm actually sort of very young and nubile everywhere else. Yeah. <laughs> um, just so I'd mention that. <laughs> you can edit that bit if you like. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> well, it's a perception, right? I mean, and it's that's true. the thing that I mean, frame. you know, the stuff that I'm doing gets written about in the coolest places. Mm -hmm. and, um, in fact, two years ago, I was voted um, amongst the top five best uh, artwork film artworks in, in the UK. Um, so that's pretty hip and cool because mm -hmm. it was sound, Sight and Sound magazine. So... Um, yeah, I agree with what you're saying, but it's, I just wanted to point that out. <laughs> I'm still 16 or 20, mm -hmm. actually probably 10. <laughs> well, um, next, uh, on the 15th uh, at the Pacific Cinematheque, Chris, you will be there at the screening? Uh, yes, yes. And uh, will there be a Q&A? Uh, there will probably be some sort of a discussion. Um, you can find out more about the screening at www.dimcinema.ca. And there's also links to essays Chris has written and to his website, which has a huge amount of information about his work, um, as well as a link to a print interview that was done recently. Um, and details about the screening. And we do usually do a Q&A, but really the more interesting part of the evening is that when we leave the theater, we usually all go to La Bodega down the street and have drinks and food together. And, I mean, that to me is the more interesting conversation around a dinner table than in this gigantic theater. But um, the screening does start at 7.30 p.m., and, um, and there, there is time for a conversation after, yeah. Fantastic. Well, I, I'm certainly looking forward to it myself, and I, I really appreciate both of you spending the time to chat with me today. Thank you, Tracy. Mm -hmm. yeah.
Thank you. And I, I would like to just say that I'm really glad that I have this opportunity to do something to help uh, Amy and, and Dim, um, because this is such important work um, to be sharing this work, not just my work, but all of this work um, here um, in Vancouver, in Canada. Um, it's just a huge gap and a huge thing that's missing, and, mm. and it needs to be done. So. Um, uh, more of it, Amy, I think. <laughs> I'm trying. <laughs> <laughs> One year, and we'll be yeah. hopefully many, many more. Mm, thank I you. hope so, yes. Well, best of luck, and thank you both for being here. Take care. Yes, and thank you. Bye. This is Life After Radio, Episode 2, Fermenters. I don't know. Look at that weird texture. It looks very slimy. Oh, that smells. <laughs> <laughs> We're both moving away about two feet right now. This is a scene that's been repeated over and over again throughout history, from the steppes of Mongolia to the kitchens of Vancouver's post-hippie DIY punks. It is the moment of the opening. I started a batch of miso, I think a year and a half ago, and I've been too scared to look at it. That's Heather Johnstone, who's currently fermenting about five different things in her apartment, making her what I've come to call a fermenter, meaning that every cupboard in her kitchen contains a new and exciting jar with a different breed of beneficial bacteria or yeast. In this episode, we bring you through the kitchens of those who couldn't stop at just one fermentation. There's a new breed of home fermenters, armed with food-grade buckets and Google, standing over bubbling experiments with long spoons and a puzzled sort of expression. Which brings us back to Heather, whose miso seems to be making her edgy. I'm feeling very nervous about it. Why are you feeling nervous at this particular moment? Well, miso, it's a fairly involved fermentation process. The first step is that you have to find koji, which is like an inoculant, and you have to turn rice into koji, which involves several days, and it's supposed to be at a specific temperature and humidity, and supposed to be a specific color. Mm-hmm. Mine was a little bit off, but I was like, eh, I'll go for it anyways. Even though she's nervous, she knows what most experienced fermenters know. The difference between a ruined batch and a batch that can be salvaged. They say you can scrape the mold off the top and it should be good underneath. <laughs> they, they being... They, I don't know, they... <laughs> they being the people that scrape the mold off the top of things. Yeah, I think there's two kinds of people in the world, those who cut the moldy cheese off and those who don't. And now we're going to see which category Heather fits into. <sighs> okay. It looks like a, a big jar with some brown stuff in it. I don't see any mold. I don't see any mold either. This Oh, there's some mold. Oh, yeah. But not too much mold. Not as much mold as I expected. And by proxy, we'll see what category I fit into. I guess maybe we can scrape the gross part out of there. We? We? <laughs> you you want to help? <laughs> Give me a spoon. <laughs> Give me a spoon, damn it. It's important to note that not all mold is contained, like in Heather's miso. This was actually more of a sludge than a mold. Some mold is dangerous, like the dark mold you can get on the top of kombucha mothers. Don't drink that. We'll talk more about that later, but you should be really careful to research whatever it is you're making, because a fine line divides the edible from the completely disgusting. So how do you tell? For me, it's a lot about smell. I think just fermenting in general, you can always tell when something has gone horribly wrong 
by its smell. You get that feeling in your nose that says, if I eat this, I'm going to be very sick. But some smells are contained, and hidden treasures lie waiting underneath. This yes. is a really overpowering smell. <laughs> and I... Oh, Ooh, you just okay. put your nose right up to that. Okay, I'm going to just discard the weight. And with a bit of work, an experienced fermenter can get to the gold. Okay, I'm taking the long spoon and I'm going to reach deep. Oh, smell that. It's a completely different creature. Oh. Whoa, that really smells like miso. It does. I'm absolutely shocked. Once Heather's found the treasure, she has an interesting way of erasing the memory of the smelly sludge. And I think we'll take it out of this gross jar in the hopes that it becomes more appealing. And then maybe we can try some. <laughs> so Sarah just got a look of terror on her face. <laughs> well, so you're going to ritually transform this, this miso by taking it out of the, the mold jar and putting it into a clean jar. Yeah. Therefore rendering it palatable. <laughs> It sounds ridiculous, but it worked. I've got a small teaspoon, the very small amount of miso. Okay, Are you ready? ready? Okay. Cheers. Okay, one, two, three. Very salty. Whoa! But so good. That is so good. This is like unbelievably good miso. Yeah. My head's gonna salt off, but it's really good. It's fucking salty, but it's very tasty. Some projects may not be moldy or smelly, but dangerous in completely different ways. I put in a yeast which basically didn't stop fermenting and basically created these little bombs. Despite the danger, we do it anyway, because we can't help it, because we are slaves to the better propagation of these strange organisms, because we are fermenters. I'm Emerson Belland, fermenter. Heather Johnstone, fermenter. Charlotte Heeson, fermenter. Sula Pulis, fermenter. Caroline Walker, fermenter. The question remains, why do we do it? Why do we spend so much time scraping sludge from the top of jars and farming tiny edible bacteria? Is it genetic? Have we been taken over by the fermented bacteria we consume, turned into walking hosts for its propagation across the world? Is it fun? Keep listening, and you might find out. Or we might turn you into one of us. I'm your host, Sarah Buchanan, Fermenter. What sort of beer is it? I don't remember at all. <laughs> That's uh, part of the beauty of the process. That's right. Emerson ferments a lot of things, but his favorite seems to be alcohol. If we look down here, besides the compost, which is always at a stage of low ferment, um, we have uh, a batch of beer just started. Um, underneath the uh, kitchen table here? Yes, living underneath the kitchen table nice. in its stage of primary fermentation. Basically from ingredients purchased from Dan at Dan's Homebrew, um, who I couldn't recommend more highly. And uh, also just this sort of out-of-the-box wine kit, because, hey, who doesn't like cheap wine? With the careful help of friends, he's learned to make whiskey, wine, beer, and even real absinthe from Wormwood. I don't know that I really saw the green fairy, but I sure tried. And you don't really need fancy equipment to do it. 
you can pretty much just use what's in your kitchen with a few adjustments. This is the biggest pressure cooker I've ever seen. It's about two feet high and a foot across. You could cook like half a lamb in here. What this is really perfect for is all these fittings on the top is uh, you can make a, a lovely stovetop distiller out of this. So you take a batch of fermented, you name it, and prep it in here and then heat up the stove. You've got a system of copper pipes that come out. You could do a reflux distill if you wanted just a, a very simple uh, straight alcohol or you could do, you could model it more after like a, uh, a whiskey still, which retains more of the flavor of the original, uh, of the original brew. He could do a lot with it, but since it's illegal, uh, I mean, of course, he's, you know, not going to. The only legal way that you can have a, a distiller in your possession is if you are making, say, uh, essential oils or perfumes or tinctures. So you're, um, you're officially making oh, a offici perfume. Of, yes, officially, um, this is not for ingestion. For the record, making beer and cider at home is totally legal, as long as you're not selling it or giving it away to minors or making more than you or your family can consume. Personally, I think of myself as having a very large family. Historically, people have always made alcohol from whatever they have around in large amounts. Fruit falls, it starts to ferment, and boom, you have booze. Even elephants have a taste for this stuff. A couple of years ago, a pack of them invaded a small town in India. They went straight for the rice beer, and in a drunken frenzy, four of them died when they toppled an electrical pole and received a lethal shock. And then there's the famous story of Johnny Appleseed, spreading seeds and orchards through the American frontier in the early 1800s. What people don't often mention is that apples were primarily used to make hard cider back then. So Johnny was actually spreading the gospel of homebrew. One of the great things about fermentation is its history. Bacterial cultures are a lot like human cultures, in the sense that they morph and change and get passed from place to place and from person to person. A sourdough culture gets passed down through a family. Uh, yeast is saved from one batch of beer to another, and strange symbiotic beings survive through centuries of careful nurturing and handing down. One of the strangest beings is kombucha, which I first stumbled upon in the kitchen of an old hippie named Beatrice in New Zealand, who offered me a sip of her mushroom drink which consisted of a big jar full of brownish liquid and a slimy mat of bacteria floating on the top. She took a swig, handed me the jar, which I declined. When I came to Vancouver, I found that this kombucha thing was everywhere, and I finally tried some, and it was good. Once you get people past that sort of vinegary first flavor, um, and you're like, it's good for you, it's good for you. Some people grow to like the idea of having a mat of green, oozing, uh, I, I couldn't even describe it, living in their kitchen. In fact, kombucha was the one thing that everyone I interviewed had in their kitchen. Basically, you make some sugary tea, plop the slimy mat thing in the jar of tea, and it kind of replicates, eating the caffeine and sugar, and leaving you with a strange beverage that is apparently really healthy. So what's going on with that little one on top? What's what's it what's it doing? Well, I don't really know. I mean, I guess it's would be forming itself into a from the bigger one. Yeah, they sort of create babies. Except each baby isn't a baby; it's a new mother. There seems to be a whole other language associated with kombucha, cloaked in a sort of nature goddess, post hippie mother child kind of metaphorical structure. 
the mother is like such a weird gelatinous mass and it's so creepy that this weird mushroom thing can eat sugar and caffeine and turn it into a delicious beverage what did you think it was when you first saw it i don't know it's sort of a bit like a weird alien brain and what what's it made of what's in it there's a it's got an acronym. The acronym, I believe, is a SCOBY. A symbiotic culture of bacteria and yeast. And uh, it eats tea. I mean, how cool is that? And sugar. Yeah, it eats tea and sugar. I eat um, tea and sugar. Yeah, me too. I figure like we have so much in common, we like the same things. I found that most kombucha owners formed a sort of mystical connection to their floaty jar thing. I envision horse riding people across the steppes of Kazakhstan, you know, fermenting fermenting their kombucha in a small goatskin sack somewhere on them. Uh, maybe nowhere close to the truth, but, uh, but nobody, I, I nobody... like to think that mine may be descended from, you know, Genghis Khan's personal kombucha. How far back do you think this particular kombucha goes? I think there's various there's various claims that kombucha either emerged from Russia or Germany. The Russians think it's theirs, the Germans think it's theirs. So probably, you know, somewhere back in the Ottoman Empire. According to my researcher, it seems to have originated in East Asia and become the kombucha that we know in Russia, where it was considered to be a cure-all tonic. The travels of kombucha continue to this day, helped by the hands of devoted fermenters everywhere. Have you given your babies to anybody? I've given my babies to my friend Naomi. Has Naomi given her babies to anyone? I've also exported some babies across the American border with my sister. You smuggled them? Mm, she smuggled them, yes. Did customs have anything to say no, about it? No, we disguised them as a, uh, as a beer. Yes, clever. What do you think they would have thought if they opened up that beer and saw a giant <clears throat> scoby? Yeah, I prepared my sister with a, with a story to baffle and uh, confound the, uh, the customs agents. Um... I told her to explain the symbiotic culture of bacteria and yeast, and I figured by the time she was like three quarters of the way into it, they would have just, you know, like waved her through or arrested her as a terrorist. You never know. Smart. Yeah. Yeah. See, the thing about kombucha is it's kind of a trap because it keeps replicating itself and making all these babies, but the mother's still good, so you don't want to throw that away. But you can't keep all these other kombuchas around, so you end up pawning them off on all your friends until everyone around you has a kombucha. And where do you go when you don't have any friends left? Across the border, that's where. And now it's a little easier to understand how the thing got all the way from Russia to here, which is probably why every punk and hippie in Vancouver has one of the things, and why they're all saddled with the terrible burden of saving these babies or the guilt of throwing them out. I asked Caroline, one of the most zealous kombucha advocates I know, for advice on the topic, and noticed that she tends to just leave all the new babies and mothers in the jar together, forming this kind of skyscraper of kombucha pancakes. I don't, I don't really like to call the, the kombucha babies. I like to have them as a happy family, and so the little stacks of delicious scoby pancakes sort of accumulate. Do you try to find people to give away the babies to? Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I definitely went through uh, my time of evangelism. Most of the babies did not end up surviving, unfortunately. By evangelism, do you mean religiously foisting kombuchas on other people? I would describe it as such, yes. And how did those people react? Well, you know, first first you enter in the, into the conversation about, you know, fermenting, maybe how I'm so excited about about it, and then and then start fantastical stories about these magical symbiote that's in this jar... In my home, and wouldn't you like one? 
<laughs> and for, most, for the most part, people, people say yes. The problem you run into when trying to give away your kombucha is that people inevitably ask what it is, and you inevitably end up making it sound really gross, and then they don't want it. So this is the part of the show where I make all of my interviewees sound dumber than they actually are, because I ask them to describe kombucha. It's like squid. It's like, it's flat squid. So think, think, um, think raw squid. So it's almost bone-like, but it's very agile and, um, and translucent like squid is. A mat of green oozing, uh, I, I couldn't even describe it. You know, I have, I have no idea what it is. It's, to me, it seems like it's an alien. <laughs> or maybe it's a mushroom, or uh, a pancake. Because it doesn't seem like mold, because it is so, like, such a firm thing. I've it's... heard people describe it as a spore. Or it's just a little jellyfish, just floating there, and some tea, making you delicious kombucha. You know, there's a mother, and it just splooshes out this other gelatinous <laughs> thing, and they work together in this bacteria mat. I don't know if you can describe kombucha mother in layman's terms, you know, until you've had your hands on the mother. It's sort of just a weird gelatinous mushroom. Now, Charlotte and Sula were the recipients of a mother made from my kombucha, or grandmother granddaughter? I don't know. But I've never been able to get mine to carbonate, and by the time I got to their house, they were having the opposite problem. So Charlotte, uh, what are you uh, what are you getting from the cupboard right now? I'm getting an oven mitt in order to in order to uh, open up the next bottle of kombucha. So here's some background on what happened with the bottle they tried to open right before I walked in the door. The kombucha actually shot to the ceiling in a pole, like looked like a rod of carbonation, and it hit the ceiling and like spread out all over the ceiling, and then dripped all over my kitchen. <laughs> And now I'm terrified to open the other bottles. (laughs) Overcarbonation is a problem I'm definitely familiar with, as Emerson was quick to point out when I toured his house. Uh, Yeah, I have good memories of actually mopping the ceiling here from uh, one of uh, your homebrews. I don't know uh, what you're talking about, Emerson. Which we've also got, uh, yeah, there's a little bit of it left there. You can see some some drips. Um, And next, we're off to visit the kitchen of Sula, who you heard just moments ago. When I've heard people describe it as a spore. And we're going to explore her fermenting specialty. Not only are you both makers of kombucha, <laughs> but you also have a large pile of cabbage mm-hmm. in, in front of me here on the shopping board. Yes. F- from one single cabbage, I understand? That's a f- from one four and a half pound cabbage. Do you say that cabbage was larger initially than my head? Yes, absolutely. I do have a pea head. Well, you have probably about a two, two and a half pound head. Okay. If, if it was a cabbage, I mean. Right, but it's not a cabbage, it's, it's a head. Sula was so excited about the idea of doing a radio show that she had all the cabbage already chopped up, knives lined up, just like a cooking show. She even talks like they do on TV. Listen. We're going to make sauerkraut today. You need a knife, a chopping board, a cabbage, some salt. So I like to use kosher salt, like sea salt. And you need some sort of vessel, vessel to put it in. So I scored this really awesome crock pot from the uh, Aziz. And you want to make sure that whatever you use isn't isn't metal. Earthware is best, but also food-safe Tupperware would work. So you cut it in about like a quarter of an inch thick slices. So you're think so you're envisioning shredding. 
So mm-hmm. think of shredding the cabbage, okay? And so I'm just going to cut through. I've kind of always wanted to be in a cooking show too, so I found some cooking show music. And so now we're going to place a handful of it onto the bottom of the crock pot. Okay. Okay. And we're going to take our um, kosher salt, sea salt, and we're going to sprinkle some, a layer of it. And when I say sprinkle, I mean sprinkle. We're thinking like, you know, fresh snow sprinkled onto the floor. Like we're not thinking like we're not layering it. Right now we have a salt, uh, salt cabbage sandwich going on here. And before we add the other layer of salt, we're gonna push them with our hands. So the, the motion is kind of like punching kneading. Mm-hmm. And why we're not adding the salt is because I've learned the hard way. You get salty knuckles. And if you get cut, then you get salty, ouchy cut knuckles. And you don't want, to be, you don't want that to happen. So, oh. so don't add the salt before you punch. That sounds terrible. Yeah, it's really awful. So you're punching down. Now this is a pretty good cabbage. And you're pushing down, wanting to get it, like, you know, you want to bring the water out of the cabbage. Your hand's got to look a little bit, you know, you got to gotta work it, so. Near the end, when you're trying to get the juice out of the cabbage to make brine, it gets really violent. Yeah, just give it a good whack. There you go. <laughs> but you need enough brine to cover the cabbage with salty water, so no bad bacteria get in. You want the good bacteria, which come from the surface of the cabbage and do all the nice fermenting. When you look at a cabbage, you'll see that it has this film on the outside of it, right? It's like that kind of like white film. And it's like kind of this natural, like all the, all the, all the um, vegetables in that family have this similar thing. So that's why like when you're making sauerkraut, you can use like Brussels sprouts, you can use broccoli, you can use all these different kinds because they have that kind of that white film. You know what I'm talking about? And you can ferment it up to a week, up to two weeks, depending on how, how much you can take the smell in your kitchen <laughs> that's the one thing and how like how crunchy and sour you like it to be for more of the specifics like how to make sure your cabbage is covered with a proper weight and a good amount of brine i recommend checking out the book wild fermentation by sandor elix katz or jumping on the computer and seeing what the internet has to say and remember to follow the instructions carefully when they say add one cup of honey to prime your beer add one cup of honey at least to start I'm all for experimenting, but your first couple batches of anything should be by the book. In fact, to help out any beginners out there, I'm going to let Emerson tell you about his worst brewing mistake, in the hopes that you won't have to learn the hard way. I would say the worst one was a sort of infamous uh, ginger beer story. What happened was, I got into making ginger beer, which is delicious. I mean, the recipe I was using was just basically sugar and ginger. And then fermenting it using, like as a beer, using yeast, and then bottled a bunch in beer in beer bottles, so glass bottles. Gave some to some friends who were visiting. They called us a few weeks later from uh, from Kamloops, where they had just uh, basically thrown them in into the van and then taken off. And we're sort of laughing, you know, in the background, and you know, calling us from their cell phone and being like, "Oh, we're just thinking about you because." We opened up these these ginger beers and and it just like blew the top off, you know, and shot the cap far, you know, off the porch so far we couldn't even find it. So like a few weeks later, my friend gets a phone call from his parents. <clears throat> it's it's his mom calling him. Oh, well, we can see is sort of my friend over on the phone. You know, we're all sort of living in the same small space, so we can, you know, sense everything that goes on going on. He you can see he's tensing up. He's like, oh, well, something's wrong. And uh, he's talking to his mom, and she's like, oh, yeah, well, 
we had those ginger beers, you know, and they were up in the closet and um and you know he he opened up the closet and and noticed that uh or he opened up the cupboard and he noticed that there was some broken glass around and there was sort of like liquid dripping out. Um and he said, "Oh, oh one of these ginger beers must have exploded." And uh and so he went to pick the other one up and as he picked it up, it exploded in his hand and <laughs> It lacerated his hand to the point where he needed to get stitches. And this this ginger beer had been given to him as a gift? As a, as a gift, as a sort of like, here's something we're doing from the farm, oh, it'll be great, you know. Take these, they're really refreshing. But we didn't expect them to just keep them and throw them into a cupboard and forget about them. As they're but madly fermenting away and creating As they're madly fermenting away, and I mean, my, my rookie mistake was that I, I put in a yeast, which basically didn't stop fermenting and basically created these little bombs i mean the story goes on i mean so she said oh well he's he's in getting stitches right now but we had to get rid of the other bottles like we couldn't handle them so we called the fire department and the fire department showed up with their bomb squad no the canmore bomb squad disposed of the other four of my um ginger beers which i thought was just the crowning achievement of my brewing history to that date I mean, these, I'm just envisioning, like, people kicking down doors and, you know, like, sending in robots to, like, take apart my uh, exploding ginger beers. But the truth is, what do you really do with something that is going to explode in your hand? And what did you learn from that experience? Well, I learned not to laugh too loudly when other people are talking on the phone, even though... It, I didn't mean to laugh at his misfortune, but I mean that I thought that was probably one of the funniest things I'd ever heard. And uh, I also learned to really pay attention to the yeasts that I use in different brews. Uh, some of them are very powerful, and uh, will just not stop fermenting. What kind of yeast was it, for the record? Oh, this was uh, a, a Lalvin EC1118, which is a champagne yeast, which will ferment up until 15 or 16 percent, I believe. And I should have just used a more like a beer yeast that would die off at around, you know, 5 to 6 percent. One of the main reasons for fermentation is to make things last longer. Much like cabbage, people have been fermenting milk for a long time, into cheese, yogurt, and a drink called kefir, which Caroline kept in her fridge. So the grains are, are not um, anything like what we would conceive of grains to be like some sort of wheaty thing. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, it's just bacteria. Kind of like little curds. Yeah. So they basically form this, uh, this clump, and within one of these clumps exists this lovely little mini world of about 20 different bacteria and they love lactose and so you feed them milk and they will give you kefir. She even took the drink on a bike trip to the Yukon since she didn't exactly have room for a fridge but you might ask why not just stop and buy some probiotic yogurt along the way instead of carting around a jar of fermenting milk. Anything that's going to be pasteurized has to pretty much kill off all the bacteria and they may add it later in like probiotic yogurts and stuff. But here, it's like a jar of milk that's chilling with, like, millions of bacteria. How could you go wrong? Caroline is just finishing her first year of medical school. And although it may sound like she has a casual attitude toward bacteria and letting them run rampant in her kitchen, she actually knows a lot about what they do and why we shouldn't bother trying to eliminate them. Your body cells, for every one of human you, there are ten bacteria. So even though the bacteria are very small... Add them all together, and about two kilograms of your human body weight is bacteria. That's a lot of bacteria. 
I think they get a bad rap. People just think of, uh, you know, antibiotics, antibacterial, this and that. And it's, it's really terrible. Because most of, most of the bacterial kingdom is just there to help us. They're, they're wonderful. Whenever you have uh, compost or anything that needs to be decayed, who's doing that? Bacteria. They line your digestive tract, and any bad bug that gets in there is going to have to fight for space to bind and then get into you. So as long as you have a good coating on your intestine, that's, that's a, a big protective mechanism. And uh, if, if I see anyone using anti antibacterial soap, I will probably slap them. Why do you ferment? Uh, the easy answer is just that it's a way of getting live food. And when you go into the research, there's all sorts of micronutrients. But what's more important to me is the many traditions that it upholds. I think what's, what gets me excited about fermenting is you take two things that may be wonderful on their own, say cabbage and salt, and you put them together and it becomes something that's so much better and better for you. It's like this miracle and it's just basically rotting on your counter. When you get into the world of fermenting you realize that uh, really it's happening all around you. It couldn't be a more natural process. I don't know. Look at that weird texture. It looks kinda, very slimy. It's kind of cool. Do you think you could do anything with that, you know, you could ferment that mold on the surface of the, uh, the miso and turn it into some other crazy batshit East Van thing? I think you should try it. I'll give you, I'm willing to donate this mold slime to you. It's kind of like you have a little science experiment that, ha that it's in your kitchen and I really like to cook and I really like to kind of combine different things and try new things and I think with fermentation it it's like you always have something new and every day it changes and then at the end of at the end of the seven days you have something completely different than when you started no matter what the reasons are behind your fermenting projects it's pretty obvious that all these crazy yeasts and bacteria and fungi and scobies they're gonna do their own thing anyway and multiply into the billions so if you can't beat them join them Why do you ferment? Because I live. <laughs> My body's fermenting all the time. So is yours. You just think about all those anaerobic bacteria that are living in your gut and, and chewing on whatever you chewed on. We are all fermenters. Thanks for making it to the end of the second episode of Life After Radio. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to fun. 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 
doesn't only destroy, it creates and molds as well. Molds as well. Let's examine closely then this dangerously evil creation, this new breed. But a word of caution, handle with care, and don't drop your guard. This rapacious new breed prowls both alone and in packs, operating at any level, any time, anywhere, and with anybody. Who are they? Who are they? CITR 101.9 FM in Vancouver. Challenge. Visit spca.bc.ca for more information. From Riffs by Dennis Lee. When I lurched like a rumor of want through the networks of plenty, a me-shaped pang on the lamb, when I ghosted through lives like a headline, a scrap in the F-draft, and my midlife wreckage was close and for keeps, when I watched the birches misting pale spring voltage and not mine, nor mine, nor mine, then a lady laid her touch among me, gentle thing for which I stand still startled, gentle thing and feel the ache begin again, the onus of joy. to Audio Text on CITR 101.9 FM in Vancouver. It's a little Malajub for you in the background reminding me of my uh, quasi-roots in Montreal. Um, I'm Julie Peters, and I'm here to host for you this show on Canadian writing. Um, today's show is a little bit different than uh, some of the shows I've had in the past. Um, as I was mentioning last week, I was just on my way to go to Edmonton uh, for a conference on poetry. The name of the conference was um, Poetries of Numerousness. And um, it was a really interesting event. There were a lot of really interesting papers going around, and um, I got to meet one of my favorite, well, two of my favorite uh, poets, actually, Aaron Murray and Steve McCaffrey, who I'm going to be featuring on the show today. Um, and so what I want to co- talk about today is um, that idea of numerousness, I guess, uh, and, and the sort of things that poetry can do that you don't always expect. I think that, um, you know, sometimes poetry tries to represent for us an experience in our lives, and um, language can only so f- uh, go so far in doing that. Um, a poem can only tell us so much about our lives because we are all individuals and we all have such specific, uh, particular experiences. So that idea of sort of the particular and getting almost beyond language to um, give an experience, if not a representation, of uh, what someone might be thinking or feeling. Um, so a lot of the poetry that we were talking about is quite sort of, you know, quote-unquote academic. Uh, it's a little bit hard to understand. You don't really know what the point is. The word are kind of sometimes they're nonsense words they don't really mean anything um but what they are actually about is still the feeling that you hear in um some of the spoken word poetry that i've been playing for you on the show previously um they're the same but different you know they're, they're different ways of getting at the same feeling or emotion um so i was uh reading a paper there 
entitled Making Love to the Words and Getting Jilted, My Textual Affair with Steve McCaffrey. Uh, cheeky little bunny that I am, I partly decided to read this paper at this particular conference because Steve McCaffrey was going to be the keynote speaker, um, one of the keynote speakers. And I, I sort of half hoped that he would come and see my paper and half hoped he would be nowhere to be seen. Um, not only did he come, but he was sitting right there in the front row while I explained that reading Steve McCaffrey was less like reading in something, um, like reading something sort of objectively in that kind of experience, but having like entering into a monogamous relationship with the poet. So I was making all these puns about, you know, textual intercourse and linguistic booty calls and stuff. Um, and everybody was laughing in the room, but I was sweating bullets. And um, I actually had to go change before dinner afterwards because I, I smelled like sheer unadulterated terror when I was done. Um, but the paper did actually go really well. And um, Steve McCaffrey really enjoyed it. And uh, we later went on to drink wine together and he told me dirty stories and it was really lovely. Um, so um, I did get a recording of him, which I'm going to be playing soon. It's like a really prime example of what Steve McCaffrey can do on the stage with his poetry. Um, before we get to all of that, of course, I'm going to give you some listings. <clears throat> Lots going on in this lovely, fine city of Vancouver um, in terms of spoken word and poetry. Uh, today is Wednesday, May 20th, and at Momar Cafe, which is on Main Street, there's a Writers in the Round, which happens monthly. It's readings, music, and an open mic hosted by Kate Polsky. Um, on Wednesday, uh, today, also Wednesday, May 20th, at the Cottage Bistro, um, Steve Miller, who you've heard on the show before, is having a kind of multimedia event. He's uh, mixing his, his poetry with um, costumes and, uh, you know, extra people and apparently fire. So that should be a really interesting one. That's at the Cottage Bistro on 8 p.m. Um, tomorrow, Thursday, May 21st, at um, GAP Adventures, which is uh, at 1965 West 4th Avenue, at 6.30 p.m., uh, Tony Greenfield is going to be reading from his new book, Waterfalls from British Columbia. Also tomorrow, May 21st, at the UBC Bookstore in Robson Square, uh, Indran... I'm your son, I was trying not to do that thing when people are trying to pronounce